healthcare system is broken, but it doesn't have to be. This is Revenue Cycle Optimized by Infinix Healthcare. We discuss the latest challenges in the revenue cycle space and provide actionable tips on how to overcome them at your organization. Hello everyone, welcome. Great to have you here with us today. We're here with Catherine Walter, who is Senior Coding Consultant and Physician Educator and an expert on all things coding. If she doesn't know about it, then chances are you don't need to know about it either. So, <laughs> Hi, Catherine. Hello, how are you? And if I don't know it, I will definitely find the answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. She's you can tell she's speaking to us from the UK. Uh, let me give you a brief introduction for Catherine, and then, and then we will uh, get into our questions and the nitty gritty here. So Catherine moved to the US from the UK in 1997. And for the last 23 years, she's immersed herself in the world of healthcare. And she began in accounts receivable with Wolverine Anesthesia Consultants in Orlando, Florida. She's certified as a coder in 2010 specializing in cardiology, interventional cardiology, and EP. And then her journey with ERS, it began back in 2008 as a provider educator and a compliance officer when she moved to Houston, Texas. So she had an opportunity to further her career in 2016 as a regional coding operations manager for HCA. And there she was responsible for the education and auditing of 800 plus providers not including residents in Texas and Florida. In 2020, she gained her CRC certification, providing knowledge and risk adjustment and HCC. And in 2022, she was pulled back to her homeland after 26 years. And that led to her retirement from HCA and allowed Catherine to return to ERS to continue provider education. So. That is quite a background, and let's take advantage of that right now and, and share some valuable information with the people who are here with us today. So, Catherine, when we started our conversations, it very quickly rose to the top that medical necessity is really an overarching criteria for payment. And there's lots of details, so let's start with a general overview, and then we'll go into the granular details. So to set the stage... Medical necessity on the care side is connected to the revenue side through coding. In fact, all care that can be reimbursed goes through coding. So with that essential role in mind, give us a sense of the landscape of coding today, which I know is just a massive question. Well, in the last three years, so 2021, 2022, and 2023, there have been great improvements, and I think that they're improvements, in our documentation guidelines, specifically for office and outpatient, and then going to our inpatient and observation, and also our split shared. So for our providers that have their APPs, like your APRNs, your PAs, your certified nurse anesthetists, then there is differences with the split shared within a hospital setting. All of this happened within the last three years, and it is now based on medical decision making and medical necessity plays a big part in that. 
in Phoenix with ERS does have a number of presentations that if you are interested in reviewing them, we're more than happy to send them to you. It is really important that the documentation and the guidelines meet the criteria of the three elements for medical decision-making. Out of the window has gone the requirement of a complete comprehensive history or a complete comprehensive examination. It all depends on the patient's presenting condition, how much data you are reviewing or ordering, and that is a big area within documentation guidelines. If you don't document it, it didn't happen. Medicare states within their billing guidelines and manual that reviewed and verified have got to be included in your documentation notes. Reviewed, you can sign off on it. If you don't add those and you are a provider that has got an NPI and your signature goes onto that claim, you have got to know that you actually reviewed and verified either with past medical records or with the patient or the family themselves. That is really important. And then care management comes to, into it as well. So basically, it is a case of how serious is your patient's presenting condition and how you are going to care for that patient. I hope I answered that question in some detail. You have so much detail in, in your head. I think it's, it's absolutely amazing. So tell us, before we get into any more detail, give us a sense of how many codes are changing at any one time. And do you have a sense that physician offices are able to keep up with this or not, just in general? Okay, I can answer that in, in two areas here. Your ICD-10 code books. So every ICD-10, that's your diagnoses. That comes into renewal on the 1st of October of every year. ERS and Infinix would be able to provide documentation and a presentation with any of those updates. Otherwise, go to your authoritative guidance like CMS, so your Medicare, or your, the AMA. Please don't go to a blog, somebody who is a consultant. Unless they are using authoritative guidance and they give you the guidelines at the end of their presentation, so you know that you can go onto that website and confirm that the information that they have provided is correct. And then January the 1st of every year, the CPT codebook changes, updates. This year has been a great improvement for our general surgeons with hernia repairs. Your hernia repairs have totally changed. It does not matter what is the presentation. It's basically a case of making sure that you state that it's an initial or a recurrent and you have the size. It does not matter now because in their all their glory, the AMA have decided that they can bundle open, percutaneous, laparoscopic and robotic procedures into one code. 
So it's basically you have to have a look at these, but also at the same time, they've taken away the 90 day global. And so all of the after work of removing staples and stitches, et cetera, within, the within your office setting, they can now be paid. There is no global on hernia repairs. A huge improvement this year for CPT codes with our general surgeons. That is the biggest area this year. And again, we should be able to get this information to you within two months of it actually occurring because they do publish the CPT and the ICD-10 code books approximately two months before they come into play. Well, Ashley, I was just going to ask you about that. We're always talking about staff shortages. And do you feel that physician offices, A, are aware that, of when these changes occur in the ICD code book? And B, do they actually have the capacity to understand these changes and how it impacts, not to be condescending. I mean, do, do they have the experts to be able to go through the coding books and understand these fine details like you were just discussing? So when you have coders, coders bring forth a lot of experience. You have a new coder who comes in, they may not have had the same experience. It is really important that if your office does not have a coder, someone who is seasoned, someone who understands that you may have authorized a procedure because the insurance, the payer requires an authorization. You cannot code according to what CPT codes have been authorized. A coder will never look at that. A good and excellent coder will never look at that. The coder will go by the documentation in the provider's operative or procedure report, even down to the office reporting. It is so important that if there have been any changes within the surgery, within the procedure itself, the responsibility lays on the provider's shoulders to alert the office of any changes. You have a 24-hour window from the day of the procedure in which to get an amended authorization. Many, many charges have been denied because the coding was not the same as the authorization. Remember, 24 hours come back from the surgery, come back from the procedure and tell your staff in the office, I had to change something. You've gone from a laparoscopic procedure to an open procedure. Big difference in coding. So that so, is one area that is important. So you had mentioned earlier, reviewed and verified. And and we've also talked about, you and I, about the fact that every detail missed on coding can cost money. It's that simple and that massive all at the same time. So can you give us, you've given us a few already, but give us some very specific examples of when missed details mean missed money. Missed details, let's go with pain management. Pain management can be very, very specific. 
when you're looking at RFA ablations and you are wanting to make sure that you have the correct information for the uh, documentation that you're looking for. When it comes to quite possibly your paravertebral facet injections, your 64490 and then the additional level of 64491, there are only a certain amount of diagnosis codes that are allowed for this, a handful of them. Are you putting on the modifier KX? Now, when I'm looking at the documentation for this, this means that you have to be familiar with your Medicare administrator. Go to the administration that is responsible for your division, for your state. For instance, Texas is Novitas, uh, Florida is First Coast. And if you go up to the Carolinas, then you have a different administration. There are seven in all. Each and every one of them, even though this is federal, even though you think that Medicare should have the exact same diagnosis codes permitted for each and every procedure, you are incorrect. One code can be missed because you went to the wrong administration. Become familiar with their guidelines, where to find LCDs and MCDs, where to go for their billing documentation. It will give you limitations and guidance. And then it should give you a list of diagnosis codes. If the diagnosis code that you have to go on that procedure is not covered, it will be denied as not medically necessary. A few years back, let's look at your nuclear stress tests. A few years back, chest pain was not permitted. However, angina was. Now there's that minuscule difference between chest pain and angina and it's the way that you documented it. So now the LCDs allow for chest pain, but for all of those nucleus that was submitted with chest pain, they were denied. And you have got to understand that the medication that is involved within a, a nuclear stress test is extremely expensive. So for the sake of, making sure that you have the correct diagnosis code, become familiar with your administration. Well, let's go back to something that you just mentioned. If a uh, procedure goes from a laparoscopic procedure to an open procedure. So for the surgeon may schedule a laparoscopic procedure and that's what is being documented. And probably that's what the prior authorization was for, but then it changes midstream, so to speak. And in the surgery, it changes. How are those changed codes supposed to be captured? And can they be captured after the surgery is completed? They can be captured. Like I mentioned, it is up to the provider to call the office, contact the office in any way, shape or form and state. I know that I was going to try this laparoscopy. I've had to 
change that to an open procedure. And so it's very, very important that this is not missed. That is the difference between what a seven or $8,000 charge um, being missed. It could be even more than that. The majority of codes or the majority of procedures have both laparoscopic and open codes. If you change one to the other, lots of work are the user missed on the provider side, reimbursement in the practice is missed as well. Now, one of the other items that I really need to explain to our presenters here and everyone who's on the call is that a coder will not code to a code that has been authorized. That is, and I hate to say that word, fraudulent. So do be aware that we cannot bill in any shape or form that way. That should probably be one of our headlines from today. Yes. That's very Absolutely. important. Thank you. Yeah. Thank You're you. welcome. So you have a very detailed presentation that shows the complexity of codes in a lot of detail. And so I thought that it would be a good idea if we pulled out one of those to show people, really give them a, an illustration of how detailed these things are so that you can speak to it. So one of them is CPT code 96202, which is for multiple family group behavior management and modification training for 60 minutes. 96203 is each additional 15 minutes. However, code 98978 is for a device designed to monitor cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, is a coder or an office or a provider going to know those three different distinct codes, especially for the device that's given? I mean, they may know to code for the care, but the device. So that would be an opportunity for missed revenue, but how is someone supposed to know that granular detail? So, and thank you for talking about this. However, and I'm going to be absolutely upfront with you. I do not know the majority of behavioral health. I know a little about behavioral health. I do not know all of it. And so before I got into and dwelled into each of the different CPT codes, I would have to research those to be able to give you a really good detailed response. I would prefer to state that now not every coder knows every single specialty. And I'm going to admit that behavioral health is not one of mine. When it comes to the office codes, then yes, I'm very familiar with those. If you do have CPT codes that are based on time, the majority of those, you have to meet at least 50%. So if you've got a 15-minute guideline, you have to be more than 50% over that to be able to bill that code. There are some that have just come into play specifically with prolonged time with our ENM coding, where you have to meet that in critical care, 
you have to meet. Like, for instance, you've got the 99291, which is your first hour of critical care. So you have to meet 34 to 74 minutes to be able to then go on to do the additional 99292, which is every additional 30 minutes. You need to be able to meet that 30 minutes. So you need to read your CPT code book. A lot of times I, I say that it's great to have your Encoder Pro. It's great to have Codify that is through the AAPC. I prefer my textbooks of a diagnosis code and CPT codes and also your hit picks in my hand. If it's fiction, I'm okay with a Kindle. But if it is your textbooks, I need to have them in my hand. And that's just me. I'm old fashioned, but believe you me, you can scope through all of them, turn the pages and you know where you are with it. So the staff in the office should be able to provide tip sheets. I've I've got quite a few tip sheets that I've presented and and given to a lot of people because you just need a nudge sometime in the right direction. And then you should be able to start to build that library of knowledge. Your staff in the office also will do that. So I'm very glad actually that we brought up behavioral health and that it's, it, it's not an area that you really specialize in because I think that for some coders, you know, that may be many more specialties that they're not familiar with that are coming in the door, right? And the need to research. And we just had a question, for example, do you have any knowledge on pharmacogenomic testing? Oh, no, I do not. But it sounds absolutely interesting. It is quite possibly one of those very small areas that is coming into play now. And... I would not state that the CPT code book and even the diagnosis code book will have a great deal of codes against them. So if, if you would like whoever the person is that has asked about this and they would like more information, please, Deborah, if you would share that with me and I will research it in some detail. It's great. Thank you for that. Let me ask right now. In the meantime, I think that given the short staffing that everyone is dealing with here in the United States, I bet, it, I bet it's global too, but here in the United States, when experienced coders leave, they take a lot of institutional knowledge with them. So what are the reference points that the newer inexperienced coders or, or they're inexperienced with the practice, right? What are the reference points that they need to make sure that they have? You just mentioned what you like to have in your hand. Absolutely. You do need to know the ins and outs of the ICD-10 code book. You need to know the ins and outs of the CPT code book. Please don't think that last year's code book is going to help you this year. I mentioned hernias. If you are looking at CPT code books from last year, you are way out of date because the medicine section and, and also the general surgery section has been greatly updated this year. 
it's been proved upon and I'm sure that there's a lot of general surgeons that are raising the flag and saying hallelujah on that. Another area, you need to look for your LCDs and your NCDs. It's like a broken record, but really you are absolutely in need of knowing your administration. Also, look at clinical policy bulletins, which are your commercial carriers. So your United Healthcare, your Aetna, your Cigna, they basically have one universal website. They don't change it. Now, when it comes to Blue Cross Blue Shield, you have to go back to the home plan of the patient not to the state that you submit your charges to because they are not the spoke. They are the hub. And then they send out like a clearinghouse to the actual home plan. Please do not concentrate. Like for instance, if you're living in Texas and you're your Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, but your home plan is for instance, with a patient who works for Walmart. Walmart's, their home plan is in a different state. If you work for Apple and you're in Texas, their home plan is a different state. You really need to make sure and look at the patient's insurance card. Every single time, ask them, have they changed their job? Are they with a different group now? Are they with a different insurance? Because that can change from month to month. A little bit different with your federal plans. They, they're a little bit more robust. But you have to be able to know where to look for your clinical policy bulletins. You don't need to print them out. Do not do that because they do change. CPT changes, they have errata updates that will appear quite possibly every quarter. And so new CPT codes may come into play, new diagnoses may come into play, but that's within the errata updates. They will not be published until the next October for ICD-10, and for January the 1st for CPT codes. With, with um, staff leaving the office and providers wondering, who am I going to be able to contact or go through the procedure of trying to interview for a really good coder? Sometimes you need to reach out to a group like ERS Infinex and, and allow them to take that burden off your shoulders because there are no vacations or PTO, if you would like to say that, because your, your staff member who does your coding is out on sick leave, is out on PTO. And so you've got two weeks, one week, two weeks of charges sitting on the desk. That's going to take over time to actually catch up. Or there may be somebody else in the office that is sick and the coder, it's always the coder that gets pulled to the front desk to answer the phones, etc. And a provider is on pro-fee. They are looking at their work RVUs and seeing that they're stagnant for the moment. 
if you have a company like Infinix, we have another coder to jump in when someone is on PTO, when they are sick. We have multiple staff members and coders who are across the way of specialty. So that is another option if you feel that you are not getting the strength of knowledge from the staff members that you're interviewing. Thank you for that. We do have another question here. Uh, the question is, we are currently beta testing an autonomous coding product. Our coding software vendor is developing to put into production. We are testing all outpatient service lines and finding lots of things that would be limitations and challenges for an AI product. Coders have many concerns while vendors are pushing for more autonomous coding with no human intervention. I'm curious what the talk is in the industry on this. It seems it opens up more risks for lost revenue. <laughs> um, being a coder that likes to look at charges, I'm going to agree that there could quite possibly be areas that we're going to lose revenue. However, look at the fact of where we were and, and some of you may not have been born in the 80s when I got my first mobile phone. Really big it was. You know, couldn't do like very dating much. yourself. Go on, sorry, but I am. And now we have tiny little itty bitty things or the first computers held in great big rooms. I mean, you've only got to look at hidden figures with the first computer that NASA had. So now that we have come through, we're now working with petrol cars. You call it gas, I call it petrol, but now we're going to electric. Now we're going to go to um, a different kind of hydrogen. Okay, so you're looking at these different systems. Within my last position, HCA, and that's a, a very big company, they were beta testing but they were beta testing to start with CPT codes, E&M codes. And the first thing that they looked at was over a year, how many codes or how many providers lost more than 80% or did or was, were overcoding or undercoding, or were they just right? Goldilocks and the three bears there, aren't, aren't you? We found out, or it was found out, that the majority of providers were choosing the correct level of care. So some of these beta testings are worked on from research over the last two or three years with your providers. When it comes to surgeries, I don't know that I've got the confidence yet. I still believe that there are some things that we need to make sure that a human being touches it because we're going to come back to the detail in the documentation. If our provider is just writing a three-sentence procedure report, they could be losing a great deal of money their CPT codes could be really down the drain. And so it's going to be the detail in that documentation, crossing T's and dotting I's that our providers are going to have to um, give to be able to have these new coding testing 
services provided. I'm not a big fan. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you. And you, you answered my next question, which was going to be about the role that providers play. So thank you. We've been a half an hour, believe it or not. And I thank you to our participants. You've asked them really great questions. And thank you so much again, Catherine, for spending time with us today. Greatly appreciated and you sharing all of your knowledge. Oh, there's so much more knowledge there. Um, I'm excited about sharing knowledge. I've got so much in my brain, and that's not AI, that's human brain. Um, so please, if, if there's any questions or if a further webinar would be appreciated, um, I'm all for it. Great. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to get notified when our next episode is online. For more information for how we can help you increase reimbursements at your company, check out our website at infinix.com. That's I-N-F-I-N-X dot